0: to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. Hi, my name's Mark, and it's great to be able to join you uh, today. Uh, This marks the first Sunday in Lent. And Lent is the journey that we walk together as a church towards Easter, where Jesus on the cross gave his life, paying a price for our sin, defeating death so that we all may live. On the third day, he rose again. Resurrection came into the world and that's what we are moving towards uh, over the next weeks. So this is a time you'll find on the website if you go to our connect page, click on the Lent tile, there's a bunch of resources there to help you focus on Christ in this time. And we really feel like this year is a bit different, obviously, with everything that's going on. And in many ways, we can't do all the things that we would normally do at a Lent and Easter period. But we really feel, in a sense, this stripped back, slightly more restricted uh, Lent. There's something of the spirit of Lent in that, which is a time of denying, but also it's a time of focusing. And, and this paired back Lent season, We also feel there's this invitation to step into this pared back essence of what the good news of Jesus is all about and the cross. So we're going to be focusing upon that. And I just want to read, just to kick off, the verse that we'll be really using as a theme verse all throughout Lentz. It's from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple," must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Let me pray. Jesus, we come before you this Lent season. We choose to walk in this way together towards the cross. Recognizing that 2000 years ago, you changed history. History is split into And we pray that this Lent season, that as we do all these different things where we we focus on you, that all of this boils down to the fact of recognising that you are King, you gave your life for us so that we may live. May that be central to everything that we do. In your name, Amen. In January 1743, one Sunday, probably the most famous ever evangelist and apostle in Britain, John Wesley wanted to take communion. He sent an emissary ahead of him to the local vicar, a Mr. Romley, and his go-between asked if Mr. Wesley could come and take communion. Now, you would think if you had one of the most famous Christians, one of the greatest evangelists ever coming to your church to take communion, this would be a fantastic occurrence particularly if you're in a country parish somewhere where normally famous people did not pass by your door. But to the intermediary, Mr. Romley said this, pass on this message. And his message read as this, Pray tell Mr. Wesley, I shall not give him the sacrament for he is not fit. What this meant? was that he was denying John Wesley the chance to take communion at his church that Sunday, for he saw him not fit to do so. Why was this? Now, there's a number of reasons. In so many ways, John Wesley had upset the apple cart of 18th century British, both religious, social and cultural life. To give one example of how this happened, I want to talk about one sermon he gave. Now if you were to think about in many ways what is the seat of power in Britain at this time as it is uh, still in many ways today, you would see that the crown was the seat of power and Buckingham Palace is still a place where people sort of, if you're on the tourist path, you head there, if you're a Commonwealth citizen from any Commonwealth country, it's a place that you want to see uh, and see the power of the British royal family. But in many ways the intellectual power and for hundreds of years the religious power really existed in a college, Oxford College. And this particular year, a couple of years before, in 1741, on July 25th, John Wesley had been invited into this central node in this network of what would become the British Empire to preach to really the brain's trust of the entire British uh, uh, kingdom at Oxford College at St. Mary's. And Wesley chose to preach a sermon entitled The Almost Christian. Preaching from the verse in Acts 26, 28, where in the King James it says, King Agrippa, speaking to the Apostle Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Now what Wesley's point was, and this was setting off a metaphorical bomb inside the religious and cultural establishment, while Wesley was making a point to a Britain which saw itself as Christian, there was no doubt, this was a British country with a head of state who was also the head of the Anglican church, what Wesley was doing that day was suggesting something utterly scandalous. That many of the people who said that they were Christian who did all the good Christian things, who were culturally thoroughly raised in this Christian society. Yes, there were some thinkers who scandalously were beginning to question the Christian faith. There were atheists emerging, people like Diderot and Voltaire on the continent who would quietly whisper of their atheism so that the servants would have not heard. But this still was a deeply Christian country in a deeply Christian continent But what Wesley was saying was raising the possibility that what if some people who thought they were Christians were really only almost Christians? He was making this demarcation line between cultural Christianity and when people actually sell themselves out fully for the gospel of Jesus Christ where one is not a Christian simply because they were born into that faith or because that's what they needed to believe to go up the social ladder of the day. What he was suggesting was that there was a deeper expression of faith that had been lost in the midst of a Christian culture, which was marked by the surrendering and laying down of one's whole life. And Wesley was illustrating this key truth, which was true for that, that, that morning in Oxford. And it's true for us today that there sometimes can be a gap between people who call themselves Christians and people who are disciples, followers of Jesus. And it was a similar message that Jesus was bringing when he preached this verse to his disciples. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Britain, when Wesley was preaching in the 18th century, was a thoroughly religious country. Jesus was preaching in an Israel which was centred around the worship of the one true God. Jesus was not only just preaching in Israel, he was preaching at that moment, not to the crowd, but to the core of those who were following Jesus and assenting to belief in him, the disciples. This was the most committed, seemingly core in the entire Jesus movement. And so Jesus is doing a similar thing here. This is a moment where he is speaking a message to the believer. But what Jesus is doing is marking a phase shift. When we look at when this teaching happens in Jesus' scope of teaching in the three years of his ministry, this comes at a point when in a sense the plot changes Jesus had gained tremendous popularity. There were thousands of people following him. Jesus was the talk of the town as people who wanted various needs met, whether it's religious needs, whether it's questions that they had, whether it was healings that they had, they came to Jesus. But at this point, really in many ways, the popular movement that has surrounded Jesus begins to ebb away at this point. And Jesus is marking out something different. It says, Matthew 16, verse 21, from that time onwards, Jesus began to explain to his disciples. That's what comes before the verse. Jesus is now revealing some of the kernels of his teaching, which had not been grasped by the disciples. And what Jesus is doing is in many ways strategically setting out the stalls of what the kingdom of God and what the kingdom of God way is going to look for look from here on in. And there's a kind of parallel I think to something that happens in the book of Genesis. When Abraham, who was called by God, promised that out of, out of him would come this, this people, was asked to mark our territory. I just want to read that from Genesis 13, verse 14. We'll begin at Genesis 13, verse 14. It says this, The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, look around from where you are to the north and south, to the east and west, all the land that you see, I will give you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth. So that if you count any, if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. This is similar to Jesus. Out of Jesus will come a new people. Out of Jesus will come this new kind of believer who lives with Jesus and will be resurrected with Jesus. This is not defined by an ethnic group. This is the people of God, the church, as we understand it today. Verse 17 says this, therefore go walk through the length and breadth of the land for I am giving it to you. Jesus has a promise out of Jesus and Jesus' work on the cross, a new world will be born, a new people will be birthed. And what Jesus is doing here before in a sense that land is given to the people of Israel, Abraham is called to walk it out in faith. So Jesus is pointing to the disciples where this is heading. And we're in the same position today at the beginning of Lent. We know where the Easter story is going. We know it's heading to that hill with the cross. We know on the other side of that there's resurrection. But at this part of the Lenten story, we're pointing forward. And Jesus is doing something similar here. But there's also a staking out of ground. There's a saying, this is what the boundaries and terrain, this is the map making of what the kingdom of God looks like. And so Jesus is marking out the land. And I just want to pull out a few ways I think Jesus is marking out what this terrain of the kingdom looks like that are are relevant for us today. Firstly, Jesus is marking out his work to come on the cross. Before the cross happens, Jesus mentions we are to take up our cross. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is marking out the centrality of the cross to his mission. And what this does is this shows us the central place, this act that Jesus must do is central to our faith. So many of us bring to Jesus all kinds of spiritual problems. It could be a a broken relationship, a job that you're you're wanting to get that you bring before God. It could be a sense of feeling just desperately depressed about this or a sense that you're afraid of that or this sense that if this changed or that happened or this problem that you have, we bring them before God. But at this moment, what Jesus is doing in this verse, he's saying, yes, he's not saying those things are not important, but the centrality of the cross elevates the most important problem that humans have is not all these secondary or tertiary things, but the central problem for humans behind all of the problems is our disconnection from God, is the fact that in the garden, Adam and Eve, our ancestors, which includes us as part of that, people chose to rebel against God and fell into sin and error and brokenness, giving over themselves to the way of death and exclusion from the garden from God. That is the central problem of humanity. And so Jesus at this point marks out that whatever is a problem behind that is the problem that is solved by the cross. And sometimes when we're thinking just as Christians, believers, nice people, what Wesley may even call almost Christians. We can make the main thing these secondary things. But the way of the disciple realizes that central to all of this is the work of Jesus on the cross. Another thing that Jesus is doing is marking this line exactly between those two groups. He is marking this line of what is the kingdom land. There is like a border that is spiritual that we cannot see, but it is clearly there. And this border is placed in uncomfortable places. He's marking this line between disciples and believers, between those who assent to the right beliefs and those who follow. Wesley, that morning in the 18th century at Oxford, was throwing that line down and pointing it out to a bunch of people who assented, many of them to the right beliefs, who were nice people. And in the sermon, he talks about people who come to church, do the right religious things, but he's making this point that we see Jesus making that his Jesus's point is the one which informs Wesley's point. That sometimes who, those people who think that they are following in Jesus' wake are more responding to a tradition or something they feel they should do or their interpretation of what it should look like according to their own agenda versus what actually Jesus is calling them to do. Jesus is marking out the line between assenting to a right belief and following him with all our lives. And this delineation cannot be passively received. When someone throws this line down, it demands a response. Either you reject it, ignore it, or surrender. Jesus is also marking the line between the way of the world and how the world operates, sees and thinks, what it values and sees as importance and the ways of the king and his kingdom. In uh, this just before uh, the passage or the, the verse that we read about taking up your cross, it just before that, there is this exchange in verses 21 to 23. It says this, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Jesus is saying this is where it's heading. It's heading to the cross. It's heading to suffering. It's heading to rejection. Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. Now you just have to grasp this for a second Peter believes his opinion, his religious opinion, trumps Jesus' revelation here. Now, that seems so bold, has so much bravado and chutzpah, it's staggering. Like, if you met Jesus, would you take him aside and say, mate, love some of your work, but I just need to tell you this. But in many ways, Whilst we may not think of that moment of us actually saying, no, Jesus, no, just wait. We do that so often. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, and listen to this loving pastoral response, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And so what Jesus is saying here is those moments when actually we put human concerns, when we view things from a human perspective, when we want to see things as we want to see them, when in a sense we judge the revelation versus letting the revelation judge us, that that's not just a neutral thing. Like That's an intense response from Jesus to actually say, Satan, But what Jesus is saying here is there's a clear demarcation in the world that often contemporary Christianity does not want to talk about this. But just as there's a kingdom of God, there's also a kingdom of Satan. And we can partner with the kingdom of Satan when we choose our own moulding of God's message, his way, according to our agenda and purposes. And so this is really important for us to realise that what Jesus is doing in this verse is marking the line between his way and our agenda. Now, John Wesley in that sermon at Oxford College was dropping a hand grenade into the cultural Christianity, which was the dominant cultural form in the 18th century in Great Britain. But what's our Oxford College? What's the jewel in the crown? What's the hub in the centre of our network, of our empire, of what makes the world work? For us, yes, cultural Christianity is in play for many of us who are part of church, who've grown up in the church, but our Oxford College of the day is actually radical individualism. Our ideology is different to so many people throughout history and in other parts of the world, is that we believe that what the individual wants, what they feel, how they see the world, is the truest, most purest truth. And that actually reality must bend to it. That you will be happy when your desires come true. This is an ideology that comes from Disneyland to department stores. And all of us are shaped by this. This is in the air that we breathe. So there is this demarcation line that comes against cultural Christianity or merely assenting without really following and surrendering. But this isn't just the hand grenade. Like like Wesley set off a bomb metaphorically in Oxford that time he preached in 1743 or whatever it was, 1741. But what this verse does today, take up your cross, deny yourself. This is a neutron bomb in the center of our radical individualism. This literally speaks into the myth that we can get everything that we want. It says deny yourself. The second myth, so one side of the coin of radical individualism is you can get what you want, And when you can define the world as you want to define it and get what you want, then you'll be happy. On the other side of the coin is deny yourself. The other side of the other coin, this is a really bad metaphor. Let me just stick with the one coin. On one side it is you can get everything that you want is the one side of the coin of individualism. The other side is you will not have to suffer. You will not have to suffer. And the ideology of our world so much is yeah, we get that people in the Congo Delta or perhaps in the highlands of Papua New Guinea or perhaps in you know, in Burma at the moment or perhaps in Syria, we get that they suffer. But really in our planned comfortable world of order where the government and corporations will do everything for us, we don't really have to suffer. It is possible to live a life where you miss the raindrops and not suffer. So many people have bought this. But to that, this verse is deny yourself, take up your cross. And we hear cross, we think of a cross around our neck. We've heard it so many times. This is take up your torturing execution device and follow me. And one of the most fascinating things, particularly I think in Australia, more than other countries that suffering myth that we don't have to suffer is truer in Australia and I think New Zealand more than many other countries. And interestingly, events of recent days of COVID-19 have so exposed that as part of our ideological myth that we can get what we want, do what we want to do when we want to do it, that we don't have to suffer. And in the midst of this, the virus has revealed the, the falseness of that ideology. So taking up your cross is a reputation of living a life of comfort, pleasure, acquisition, your dreams coming true and you being well regarded. That's what Jesus is saying. This is something which must be weighed, must be held. This is not something you just fall into easily. The decision is asked of us. Jesus is also marking the line between our responsibility in this spiritual work and his work, in a sense between salvation, which he can do, and our discipleship in following him. What's really interesting is the verse says, take up your cross, Jesus is saying to the disciples. He's not saying, hey, follow me, take up my cross, like it's my cross, just come along. Why does he say, take up your cross? Now, what he's saying here is that on this cross, where it's all going, he says, I have to die. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be handed over to the religious leaders and I'm going to suffer. And on the third day, I'm going to rise. Like the disciples cannot do that. The disciples cannot take sin upon themselves. The disciples cannot defeat death. The disciples are not God in human form. The disciples cannot be in the grave for three days and then rise and bring about a whole new kingdom of God breaking out in the world and moving history to the ends. Jesus is not saying the disciples can do that. So what does he say, take up your cross? And why does he say that before the cross? What he's reminding us is an element in discipleship. We cannot do the work of justification, of saving ourselves. It is given as a grace to us. Humans are not able to do that. But there's an element in discipleship where what Jesus is saying, this is the way, this is the way to life. This is the work I will do. History will be split into that fall that humans humans uh, you know, had in the garden, I'm going to undo that. I'm going to reunite hu- reunite, hu- reunite humanity and God. But you also have to take up your cross. There's an element of choosing to be part of this, that you have to say, yes, I want to be a disciple. I want to be remade in the way of Christ. I need your empowerment, Holy Spirit. I need you to lead me, Jesus. I'm going to follow you, Jesus, but I actually have to do this. I think this is really key for this moment. In some ways, this is like Wesley's sermon into our contemporary Christianity, our cultural Christianity of the day. One of the great idols of contemporary Christianity is that religious professionals will put on a fantastic output for you in the form of the church, which will do all of the stuff for you. Watchman Nee spoke about the fact that many immature Christians We'll look to mature Christians to carry them through the life of faith. Now, there are times when I have been hurting and weak and lost and I've turned to stronger Christians at moments and they've had incredible words and lifted me up at moments of weakness. But that's not a lifelong posture. There is an element where we need to move in our faith, be built up in, in maturity where we're not just living on milk, but actually living on solid food. Jesus marks the line between our responsibility and his work. This verse kills the idea of not just stronger Christians having to do it for you, but having some sort of professional clergy class that will do all the real stuff. What we've learnt in the last season, in the midst of this disruption, is the priesthood of all believers. That when a lot of the professional stuff could not happen, that church couldn't happen on Sundays for a lot of the last year, that people began to realise like, man, there's this responsibility. I've got to take responsibility for my faith as well. And we see Jesus marking that out here. Now lastly, what Jesus is also marking out here is the territory of obedience. Following is obedience. That empowerment comes only in the land of obedience, that you're not going to get Holy Spirit empowerment for your dreams that are not aligned with God's heart. You don't get empowerment out of the land of obedience. You don't get God's favour outside the land of obedience. Taking up the cross is you choosing the way of obedience. However, that sounds like, particularly to our radical individual eyes or ears, that seems like some restriction but it's actually an activation. That carrying your cross is also carrying your God-given gifts, talents and call, which can only be activated when the walk of obedience begins. And I just want to say now, at this beginning of this Lenten period, that Jesus is inviting many of you, or all of you, who call yourself believers, or perhaps even exploring faith. He is saying, Follow me into the ways of obedience. I want to activate. I have a call for you. I designed you before I designed entire solar systems with a purpose and a plan. And I'm inviting you forward to step into that. I equip you. I empower you. I give you gifts and talents. But let's activate that now. Let's turn the key of obedience, taking up our cross, willing to walk the way, even when it's difficult, even when it involves suffering, even when it involves unpopularity. And just a quick side point, from here on in, following Jesus is increasingly going to become intensely unpopular in our culture. If it was unpopular before, I have a sense it's going to get even more unpopular as our cultural climate gets crazier. So Jesus is asking us to go forward. But the good news is this, if this is felt, like this sense of dread, some taking up your cross, all this imagery. Jesus in verse 16, 24 says this, whoever loses their life for me will find it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. The ultimate marking out that Jesus is doing here is actually the way that leads to life. He is marking out the land of death and the land of life. And the way to life in the eternal, which also breaks out into this world now, is actually through giving up your life. What use is it to gain the world but to lose your soul? Jesus is offering life a different way of living. We have to change our settings and our metrics of how we understand things, but Jesus is showing us the way to abundant life. I believe this year, where things are going, and it's not even just about COVID, it's about so many other things in the world, there is this sense, there is this great call to discipleship in the world at this moment. It is increasingly more and more uncomfortable and unprofitable to be a cultural Christian, to be a habitual Christian, to in Wesley's world be an almost Christian. There is this call going out in the world at this point in time to be a follower, to be a disciple, to be one who surrenders everything, walks in the ways of obedience. And I believe that this Lent, there is an incredible primed opportunity for us to discover Jesus in new ways. And if you're one of those people like that morning who heard that perhaps, man, what if I'm an almost Christian? When Wesley preached at Oxford, Maybe like the disciples feeling like, whoa, maybe I haven't got this. The good news is Jesus reaches his hand out and offers you his help as we walk to his way, laying down all because it's simply too heavy to carry and instead saying, Jesus, I want to follow you. Come what may, I will follow you. I would like to leave the last word. last prayer to John Wesley himself. And this is a prayer he wrote and it's going to be up on the screen. And I want to encourage us to all read this together. So I'm going to read it now. And let this be a consecration, a covenant that we say to God as we begin this Lenten season moving towards Easter and the cross. Let's pray. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you choose. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, a oh, glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, And Holy Spirit, you art mine and I am yours. So be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen.